can't stay up here. I had a man who's a mentor, and he challenged me even on how I read the scriptures. And there are times if you were to walk into the church and peek into my office, you'd see that I have the Bible open and on the chair, and I'm kneeling before it as I come and read it. And the reason I do that at times is to remind myself of reverence to the word of the Lord and to be in a posture of receiving from him and to prayerfully be reading his word in that way. Postures and and physical ways of dealing with God are important, and I'd encourage you to develop those within your own spiritual life. There's a movement within the church that says, if you want to reach non-Christians, you've got to get rid of all that stuff. Man, my thing is, what the world is looking for, and some of you are in here looking for today, is authenticity within the life of the believer. And I'll tell you this, when I speak about my family, I get really impassioned about my family to the point times uh, of tears. Shouldn't it be the same way when we talk about the God of the universe who loved us in Christ? That we get excited about it and we get enthusiastic about it and we respond physically to how uh, he is and who we are in his presence. It's good stuff. This morning we're going to continue on with our new series talking about Community 101. What does it mean to be in community with one another? This is a a six-part series that we're going to be doing. And last week was just a simple introduction as we began and looked at John chapter 17 of Christ's plea to the Father of saying, Father, make them one even as we are one uh, in that. And we kind of talked a little bit about that. Now this week we're going to talk and go back uh, to the beginning of Scripture, to Genesis chapters 1 and 2. And we're going to look at the idea and the truth and the reality that we were designed in the image of God and designed not for solidarity. We weren't designed to be alone, but we were designed to be in oneness with one another and with God and what that begins to look at and that we were given a purpose within that design. So we're going to look a little bit at first the design of the Trinity of God, who he is, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in that relationship. Then if he says, I created them, man and woman, in our image, that he created us in the image of the Trinity that we have intrinsic within our DNA, within the very depths of our soul, uh, a, a, a need to be in relationship vertically and horizontally. That's how we were designed. And then with that in mind, what's the purpose of doing all of that? I, I'm going to step back just for a moment, and I want to make a couple of points of clarity. Last week as we were, were talking, I said a few things, and in it I didn't mean to be insensitive to where some of you may be coming from. Some of you are coming out of church backgrounds and out of denominations that have fought and have had bitter splits uh, and have had a lot of underlying and behind-the-scenes stuff that's been going on. And so you're really sensitive to those things. And I wasn't all that sensitive last week with you as I kind of joked around a little bit of saying that the honeymoon's over uh, and that we're going to talk about some things like that. And I heard from a few of you who basically said, oh no, is there a bunch of stuff going on here too? No. And I say that absolutely honestly. I shouldn't have joked so much. The honeymoon's really not over. And I hope it isn't, doesn't get over. Uh, here, but that we can enjoy that, that beauty of being together and that there's nothing big happening behind the scenes. I'm not hiding anything from you and I'm not in squabbles with other people. Uh, it's, just some, it's just life together. And life together has some things. They're not big. It's just how do we learn to live together well? And so I just want to put some of your fears at ease uh, with that. 
Uh, and we're going to be open and honest, though, at times. And if there is anything that comes up, we'll chat about it. We'll talk about it first in private and try to deal with it. And then if we have to, we'll talk about it publicly. But just everyone okay? All right? So here's what I don't want you to do. Bill came up with a denial. That means there must be something behind <laughs> the scenes. So uh, there's no, just saying that there's nothing behind the scenes really does mean there's nothing behind the scenes, okay? Uh, I'm not a politician, I'm not spinning anything, and I didn't get my PR department to work on this today uh, for us. So what we're going to do, though, is we're going to walk together. I like to walk together openly with folks. You pretty well know where I am on things. If you've gotten to know me at all, uh, you know that I wear my emotions on my sleeve. You can tell when I'm happy, and you can tell when I'm frustrated. You can tell when I'm melancholy, and you can tell when I'm not. You can just know that about me. I'm not really good at disguising those things. I don't play well uh, with posing and all of that. I did for most of my life. Let me share with you a little bit of me again. And Remember, I was born into a home of a pastor, and I grew up with the expectation in the home and in the community in a small town in in Cape Girardeau, Missouri, um, that you were known. And so you needed to keep up uh, how it was to live as the preacher's kid uh, of this growing church with my dad and his growing reputation in the community. Then we moved to Charlotte, and and this little world that I understood all of a sudden got blown away as I went to a massive public school, was bussed in with kids from all over the city into this inner city school, and I didn't know how to understand life. I didn't understand how to do all of this stuff, but I knew on Sunday I was supposed to act this way. And so on Sunday, I acted a particular way, but during the course of the rest of the week, I learned very quickly how to adapt and how to live basically two different lives. There was the life of Bill McCutcheon, Billy McCutcheon, the pastor's son, and he was the kid who would say, yes, sir, and yes, ma'am, and tip my hat, and you would want me to date your daughter, and I would say, open the door for her, and I'd come and meet you and ask you for permission to date your daughter, and I'd take you out, and you didn't want me to date your daughter. Because I could play the game. I could use and manipulate and utilize Christianity and church stuff and religion just enough to serve the goals that I had in my life. And I resented the church because what I saw in the church was a church filled with people who I could see them on Sunday morning with their hands lifted and all of these things. And through the course of the week, I knew what they were up to. I was hanging out with their kids and their kids were telling me uh, about their parents. And I was telling them about my parents and about our lives together and the whole mess that it was And so I lived this really dualistic life. And then as I grew and I became a Christian later in my life and I wanted to get rid of some of those things, I came and I married Lisa and we had our family and we were moving. But what I found was this incredible difficulty of merging this Bill that had led this life over here in secret and in shadows and this Bill now who really wanted to live his life for Christ. And I didn't know how to do that. And God in his incredible grace over 21 years has really gotten rid of the Bill McCutcheon that lives in shadows and brought it together to be one Bill McCutcheon who's trying the best he can to live out in the light. Do I still hide? Sure. Do I mess up all the time? Absolutely. But what I'd like us to do as a church is to begin to merge those two worlds within many of our lives. That there is this sacred-secular dichotomy that's happened over the course of time. There's our sacred life. There's our Christian life that we profess Christ and we do these things. And then there's this other part of our lives which we don't think Christ needs to touch or should touch. And so we just kind of have it over here. And and I've seen it in spades even within the last couple of weeks with some folks that we care about deeply of seeing it affect where one partner is saying, wait a second, I love Jesus, but I'm going to continue to live this way and the impact that it's having on a marriage. 
of going, that's, that's not consistent. And so what I want us to do within the church is begin to live a more consistent life and a consistent testimony out in the world. Does that make sense to you? Does that sound radical to any of you guys? Well, it shouldn't. We call it radical, but it's actually supposed to be normative. Christ says, I don't know, you're just supposed to be different. That's not radical. It may be radical to the world standards, but to his, it's just living consistently. It's living open and honest lives before him. And what I'd really love to do is have some other people who are going to get excited about this and want to jump right into living open, examined lives in front of one another and in front of the world around us. Because it's then when things really get good, isn't it? You ever gone to someone and you begin to share with them something that's kind of difficult in your life, and you go, I'll just pick on Ken, he's right here in the front, I'll teach you not to sit up front, and I go to Ken and I say, Ken, this is going on in my life, and he goes, ooh, you ever had someone flinch at you? How does it make you feel? Well, I can tell you what, if you flinch, I'm not ever sharing another thing with you, and usually it's people who flinch are the ones who think that, gosh, how could you do that? I would never do that. And so we live in these sort of dichotomies of going, hmm, my life's a mess, but I don't know where to share my life. The Christian church has often been characterized as an army, that we're supposed to go out and take uh, the world for Christ, but others have characterized the Christian army as the only army in the world that shoots its own wounded. That we're going out, and here's what I'd love for us church, our church to look like. That if we say that we're going to come together weekly for a gathering of the saints and for a gathering of people and for visitors to come in and kind of take a peek in and investigate and see our great God and hopefully come to faith in him. But it's going to be a bunch of busted up lives that for seven days a week are out there living for Christ and you're going to take some, you're going to get shot at. You're going to get wounded, you're going to mess up, you're going to fall. And so we hope that you can come back within Christian community into your small groups, into your homes, into your fellowships. And instead of people going, wow, you did that. Let's just put you out of your misery. You're out. Instead, say, man, I know right where you are. Let, let's come back together. Let's, let's come around one another. Uh, let's build one another up. Let's, let's see what we can do uh, in that together. And then together for the gospel, see what can happen on this island and in Bluffton and around the world. I think we can see God do amazingly more than we ever. I, I've got huge dreams for this church, by the way, folks. And they have nothing to do with numbers. Here's what I believe about this church. Here's what I believe about you. I believe that the God of the universe, the third person of the Trinity, the Spirit himself, indwells you. And in that, he can turn this world upside down if you want to see it happen. That he will empower this church and bring us together to do incredible things that people are going to be amazed at because of this church. Do you believe that? And some churches that would have gotten an amen. Uh, but um, again, I get it. Uh, but I get fired up about this stuff. You know, this is what I think about about 60 hours a week. I think about church stuff. You may go, good grief, that's horrible. I get fired up about it. I love the fact that we can gather this group of messed up people together with all of our backgrounds and all of our dynamics, and we have one solitary confession, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ who's done incredible things in each of our lives individually, now bound us together collectively that we can go out and with one voice and one testimony in the world say, this is our God come in and experience him. So with that in mind, we're going to talk about first how you were designed. It's a good to know that you were designed uh, a particular way, and there's a back step in this, and that is I am making an assumption. I, I am stepping, I'm setting out in front of you this. I believe that you were created by God, that you didn't evolve and you didn't come into being uh, by mistake. 
that I am standing back and saying, first, we're going to hold together this one truth. You may not agree with that, but that's where we're going to build from today. That God spoke and he said, we're going to create man and woman in our image. And so we're going to go back to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to read together. So if you've got your Bibles, flip over to chapter 1, verses 26 through 31. And then we're going to look uh, at chapter 2, verses 15 to 25. This is God's word. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit, and you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning on the sixth day. Flipping over to chapter 2, verses 15 to 25. And the Lord God took the man, and this is an explanation in a different vantage point of the same things that have already happened. That the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone, and I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all livestock and to the birds and to the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she has taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the Lord's word. May he add his blessing to the reading and hearing of it. Amen. The first thing we're going to touch on today is simply this. We were created in the image of God. It says there in verses 26 and 27, Then the Lord said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And in verse 27, So God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him male and female. He created them. First this, when he says we want to make him in our image, the plural there indicates and points us back to this picture uh, of a multiple dynamic within the Godhead within God himself, that it's one God, but we understand him in three persons, that there's the Father, that there's the Son, and that there's the Holy Spirit, that it's a trinity brought together. And that in that trinity, 
it says within the scriptures and it looks at other places that all three persons of the Trinity are equal in power and in glory without confusion or corruption between the three. That they are in harmonious relationship with one another. That they are connected together throughout uh, all of eternity. And we see it borne out within the scriptures. You can see Christ who speaks to his father and talks to his father and says, God, Father, I want us to be one just as, uh, I want them to be one just as we're one together. And that the spirit comes from Christ and the father proceeding from them and goes out and ministers within the world. It says he's a down payment and a, and a, a picture of what is to come for us. So within the one who made us, there is a relationship. There is connectivity. There is a oneness and community that is formed. And I think about the community within the Godhead. Do you think it looks like ours? Think there's any bickering? I don't really want to go down there. God, Dad, do I really have to go down there? I don't want to go down there. Do I have to go today? Can I just finish hanging out with the angels for just a little while longer? And then I'll go down and do that. And the Spirit going, I don't want to hang out down there. It's earth. Good grief. I want to be back up in heaven hanging out with you guys. I don't want to do that. Or there's none of that. It says it's done perfectly and beautifully, harmoniously within the Godhead. There's the picture. But it's very interesting, too, within the Godhead, there are economies. And there are differences of an economy. And what I mean by this is simply God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit have different purposes. They have different things that they are to accomplish. And it is said that God the Son, Christ, came. And when he came, he submitted himself to the will of the Father. It didn't make the Father greater than him. It made him different and distinct from him. And the Son submitted himself to the Father to perform a different task or a different role within the world. But he said he didn't hold the things of heaven to be something to be grasped, but he released them and emptied himself, coming and taking on the form of a bondservant, even a slave, to be crucified on a cross for us. And so there's this picture of differentiation of what they were called to do, while each remaining distinct but equal. And the Holy Spirit has a different function and a different role, that the Holy Spirit goes out and he's ministering, but it's different from the ministry of the Father and of the Son. So why I say that is this. Though we are called together in community, we're called together, and we're going to look at that, we're called together differently. We're all equal before God. Men, women, children, adults, parents, all of those, there's an equality before God. But there's economic differences of our purposes and calls within this world that make us distinct. And there are distinctions, aren't there? Uh, we, we've now moved so far within the world today and our culture, which is trying to get rid of all distinctions, that there are no distinctions between anyone, between male and female. There's no gender distinctions. There's no distinctions uh, within class. There's no distinctions in any of those things. What the scripture seems to say is there are distinctions, but those distinctions don't classify us or make one greater or different from the other. It just makes us distinct. And our purposes and calls in that. I, I use this very often with husbands and wives. And, and again, in our culture today, uh, it says men and women are absolutely equal. And in the home, they should be absolutely equal. It's an egalitarian system. And unless there's unanimity uh, within uh, the, the, the marriage, nothing can be happening. And then there's this other side. People go, oh, you're part of that church. You're part of one of those churches which says men can only be the leaders and therefore the man dominates the woman and the man's the head of the woman at the home and the woman has to do anything that the man says that he has to do uh, and all of that stuff. And we find ourselves in this sort of tension. 
the best way to describe it for me is this. The understanding of a relationship between husband and wife or men and women within the church is a distinction between the father and the son, that they're equal before God. They have different roles and functions to play. It doesn't make one function greater or lesser than another. It makes it distinct and different. And the two are to be held in tension, but the two are to be held beautifully within that tension, moving together towards the common work of proclaiming and glorifying God in what we do. Does that make sense? So it doesn't say, hey, guys, guess what? You get to have this great role, and you can just hold it over your wives. And it doesn't say, wives, you've got to sit around and do anything the man says. It says that you two are distinct. You have different callings uh, in your life. And the word that's used within the scripture uh, is this, that God says that, well, we'll get to that in a minute. Um, Women is the word easier, and a lot of the women's ministries are kind of building on that. And I'd love for you to learn what that idea of helper is. Because if you think that helper men uh, is just they're there to take care of you, That word easer was used oftentimes of God himself. And I don't think that we're going to look at God in the same way that we look at servants uh, in that way. He says, I'm your easer, but I'm distinct from what you think I am. And so there's this picture first that we're made in the image of God. There's a great song by Simon and Garfunkel. You guys may be familiar with it. Younger generation, probably not so much. I am a rock. I am an island. I'm just out there doing my own thing. I've got it. I can handle this. I've got it all on my own. I can manage life on my own. That may be great for a song and great for a lyric, but it's not biblical. You were designed to be in relationship. The only place in the beginning of uh, the scripture that says it was bad was after God looked around. He said, I made everything perfect and good. And he looked at Adam. He said, Adam, you're alone. That's not good. I'm going to make for you an easer, a helpmate. I'm going to make for you uh, a completion and a fulfillment. I'm going to make for you a second nephesh, as some say, a different soul as part of you to come together and to be together because it's in relationship somehow that it's in community and relationship that the image of God is best proclaimed to the world. And so it says that God made us in his image and that we are created not for solidarity, not to be alone, but for community and that we need to understand that about ourselves. So the first thing is we were created in the image of God. And the second thing we were done, it says that we were created for oneness. Look at verse 24. It's speaking of a husband and wife, but it's applicable across the lines. It says that, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The two shall become one. There is this becoming, uh, and especially in the marital relationship, of the two losing their distinctions in some ways. They're still husband and wife, but they're brought together as one, and therefore what's good for the one is good for the other, and that there's a flourishing that comes when they're seen together collectively. But there's also an understanding on the broader sense that that happens within our lives within the church. Think about within the scriptures how many times it speaks of one anotherness. When it says that you come and you are joined to Christ, Guess who else you are joined together with? Want to take a guess? The person sitting next to you who also claims to be a Christian. Now that may make you feel good or that may make you feel bad. But it's true that we're joined together in this and that we are becoming at one sense one flesh in that way. And so what then is good for one is good for the whole. That the one who is flourishing has a benefit and a blessing to the whole and the one who is suffering also has to have an effect on the whole. So it's in our greatest, even in our greatest self-interest to care for those within our body who are needing, who are hurting, who need us to come around them. So there's a sense in which this is almost self-serving. If I see you hurting, 
guess what? It's in my best interest to go and care for you. Why? Because I get to feel good about myself? No, that's not it. It's not an emotional sense, but it's a sense of which when the whole is healthy, then each individual within the whole is more healthy in that way. We view ourselves too often individualistically, but you are combined together. It's not just because some of you uh, came and took vows to be a part of this church, but in the body of Christ, do you realize that? That you are bound together with others in the body of Christ. And it says, love one another, care for one another, serve one another, look after the needs of one another, speak kindly to one another, discipline one another, feed one another, clothe one another, shelter one. You see the sort of one anotherness in that? That it comes within the body of Christ. And there's something incredibly important that as we become one together, how we live together is of absolute importance in the world. I mentioned a little book to you last week by Francis Schaeffer. Uh, and the book is called The Mark of the Christian. Anybody read that this week by chance? Usually when I mention a book, I'm kind of hoping that somebody will go, ooh, that may be a good book for me to read. And it cost, I think I, I uh, rebought it on Kindle because I didn't have a Kindle edition for like $3.99, maybe $4.99. And I read it in 72 minutes. I timed myself because I wanted to be able to come here and say, it's it in the big book, guys. It's really simple. But Schaefer touched on this. He said, your coming togetherness, your oneness is what the world is looking at and reading. People sitting at Starbucks, I go there quite often. They're not reading their Bibles. So how is it they're going to learn about God? How is it they're going to learn about the gospel? You know what they are looking at? They're looking at those of you who they come in contact with who profess Christ, who come to this church or go to another church, and they're saying, I'm going to learn something about the crew. I'm going to learn something about this God. I'm going to learn something about all of these things by watching you and knowing how it is that you live together in community. And sadly, the distinction that's happened over the course of many years and, and centuries is this. People go, if that's what it's like, I don't want to have any part of it. We were called together as one, to live together as one, uh, in such a way that cares for the needs of the others that makes a profound statement to the world around us. Let me encourage you. Get that book this week. Read it. It's really simple. It'll challenge you. You want another book that'll challenge you? Here's another one. Dietrich Bonhoeffer. When he called, called Life Together. Anybody read that one? A few of you. All right, we got to read. We got to read a little bit more during the course of the week and challenge ourselves on to some, some things. But these men... We're touching on something that we want to touch on here, that we are bound together, and we're bound together, one another, one flesh, brought together in that sense that we are now the body of Christ, right? When it says now that we are the body of Christ, we are his hands, we are his feet, we are his heart, we are his voice, we are his eyes out in the world, that we're that body unified together, and within that body there's incredible differences, there's giftedness, that some are a hand and some are a foot and some are an eye and some are a nose and some have different gifts, but they all work together for the greater good and the greater call. So you have to ask the question then, and we'll end with this today, is what's the purpose? Well, the ultimate purpose is to bring glory and honor to God, but I'm going to look at this passage real quickly, and we're going to look at three words. I've rambled on too much, and so I've lost the part that I really want to get to, and that's this. We are designed for a purpose. Verse 15 says that the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. What are some of the words that you're, if you have an NIV, what does it say there? Somebody read it out real loud for me. To work it, to take care of it. 
Uh, so it's that same image, that there's this sense in which it's a gardening image. It's been translated over the years that the Lord God put the man and the woman into the garden so that they could till it and to take care of it. But the words there, I'm going to give you three words. There are three words. The word for placed is the word nuach, N-U-A-C-H in the Hebrew. And that word is a word that really conveys something very different. Uh, it's the normal word for to place something. If I was going to place my hand on this uh, is the word sum, S-U-M. But he uses a different word there. And I think the reason that he uses this different word uh, is it's a word uh, that means to rest. It's the root word for Noah, nuach, that the man and the woman were placed within the garden to rest, to experience peace, to experience a shalom and a flourishing, that they were placed there. And then it says that they were placed there to abad and shamar. A-B-A-D or A-V-A-D, however you want to do it, Avad, and Shamar, S-H-A-M-A-R. And, and the ideas there to Avad and Shamar are this. The word uh, Avad, oftentimes people think, is to work or to tend, but here's what it really says. In Deuteronomy 6, you shall fear the Lord your God, and you shall Avad him. You shall serve him, and shall take his name in oaths. Elsewhere, it says to worship. It's used over and over and over again of worshiping God. So one of the first things that we were placed in the garden was, within the context of rest, was to worship him. Was to serve and to worship God within the context of rest. Do you realize that, that we come together, that what we do on Sunday morning is one of the very first implicit things that's called together for Christians is to worship him. That that's a part of our lives. That in the midst of our lives, we're to give him worth and to worship him throughout the course of our day. Avad. And then to shamar. The word to shamar isn't to tend, but it is a sense of which to keep, as in keeping commandments. So it's really saying this. It's a picture of God taking us as man and woman, as a church, bringing us into a place of rest. Of saying, I've placed you in this rest relationship with me so that you will worship me and that you will live your lives in such a way that brings me honor through obedience in my commands within the world so that people will see and know me. And the blank stares. So what does that all mean? What does it mean? It means this. You are called in this life in oneness to worship him, to bring worth to the name of God. So we have to ask ourselves, how are we doing with that? We were called in this to be in a relationship with God in such a way that says we're going to obey him and live in a way that's distinct from him and by his word. How are we doing that within the world? Are we living in such a way within the garden that's calling us to rest? Any of you guys tired? Most of you are tired. People ask me regularly, Bill, how are you doing? And lately my response is this, I'm tired. What that normally tells me about me and what that tells me about you is we've missed part of our purpose. God has called us in this world into this sense of experiencing rest within him. And part of that rest comes in worshiping him and obeying him and living together in that way, encouraging one another on to those things. So as we end, I'll end with this. The conclusion is let's try to bring it all together. We're designed in the image of God, to be in relationship with God, 
and in that relationship designed to go out into the world and to live in such a distinctive way that the world sees God and wants to come into relationship with him. And so with that, here's my challenge to us. How are we doing? How are we doing? How are we doing in those things? How are we doing in our world around us? How's the world viewing us as we come together, as we live together? It's tough. It's tough sometimes. But the beauty of this is God brought him in. And there's this coolness and sweetness of walking together with him in the context of that and that garden that invigorates us. So here's the challenge this week. Ask yourselves, how are we doing together in our oneness, designed and created in the image of God in that oneness? Are there bickerings and dissensions in that that are tearing it apart? And then is it keeping us from our ultimate purpose and goal, which is to worship him, to obey him, and to serve him in that way? That's a challenge. Next week, we're going to ask the question of this. What does it mean to love one another within this community? What does love look like here? So be thinking about that this week. Think about love. What does love look like? We'll celebrate Valentine's next week together. This big love fest. We'll come together. We'll talk about love uh, together and see how we're doing with that. Let's pray. God, thank you. It's a challenge for us to look at these things and uh, to try to figure them out. But at one level, it's incredibly simple. God, that we're called in your image, designed in your image, to live together so the world could see you. Would you help us to do that? Challenge us in that way. Father, we praise you and give you glory in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand and sing and close together this morning.
you know, we live individual lives too much that are alone. I'm going to invite you into community. A lot of what we're doing this fall is designed to help create a place for you to no longer be alone. We've got men's groups that have started. We've got women's groups that have started. We've got some couples groups that are going to get going this month in homes. We have a ministry to uh, the young at heart, to our seniors that's going to gather together for a meal and they get together. There are opportunities for prayer and opportunities for lunch and breakfast throughout the course of the week to invite you in to community. There's men's breakfast that we have once a month. There's all kinds of stuff going on. And it's not just stuff on a calendar, folks. It's there intentionally to invite you in to relationship with other people and learn how to live in a one-anotherness. That's challenging for some of you. You love the shadows, and I get it. There's been pain, and there's been hurt, and as one writer put it, we live in our caves, and we stay there because we're afraid to come out because of the pain we experience. But we want to invite you out into a safe place where you can grow together, and we can grow and invite a lot of other people who are tired of being alone in the community here at our church. And now may the Lord bless our efforts and bless you. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up the light of his countenance towards you and grant you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace. Thank you.